Welcome to 5 Minutes to Chaos, the podcast that dives deep into the world of chaotic emergencies and complex crisis management. In each episode, we'll engage with emergency managers and crisis leaders to explore the challenges that arise in times of crisis and the strategies they employ to navigate through them. From natural disasters to technical failures to human-caused events, we'll examine real-life scenarios that put crisis managers to the test. Join us as we uncover the lessons learned from past emergencies and gain insight into the complexities of crisis management. With five minutes to chaos, you'll be better prepared to face the unexpected when it strikes. Let's dive in. Hello, everybody. Stephen Kerr here, your host of Five Minutes to Chaos, an unrehearsed, unscripted podcast with the goal of promoting crisis management through the raw experiences and observations of emergency managers, crisis leaders, and incident commanders that have led their teams through complex and challenging situations. Well, from a crisis management and emergency management perspective, we have uh, an interesting guest with us today, somebody that I have uh, traveled a similar path uh, along the past three decades, back and going uh, through the Wayback Machine when I was in New York City OEM, one of my roles was to uh, coordinate and lead bioterrorism preparedness efforts in New York City under the direction of our director, Jerry Hauer, who had experience and, ex- and exposure, no pun intended, to that. And along the way, I got to meet with uh, professionals such as Dr. Usha, uh, Dr. Uh, Usha George, who is our our guest today. Welcome to the show, Asha. Thanks, Steve. It's good to see you again after all these years. Um, Same here. We have uh, traveled some of the same path. We have some of the same connective tissue. We know a lot of the same people, but tell us about your background and a little bit about bioterrorism and and what you do. Okay. Well, my background is kind of varied. Uh, I was uh, in the Army uh, as an active duty Army military intelligence officer and a paratrooper between when I got my my bachelor's, sorry, my master's and uh, my doctorate. I am a Desert Storm veteran, and I mention that only because when I was in Desert Storm, um, we were given the uh, anthrax vaccine because there had been some intelligence to indicate that Saddam Hussein in Iraq had authorized loading Scud missiles with anthrax, with weaponized anthrax, and so we needed to protect ourselves. I didn't know uh, we had a vaccine going back that far. Gulf War One was like 90, 91? 1991, yes, yeah. and we did, but it was not authorized for use in you know a wartime situation. It was actually authorized by the FDA for use, I think, in... Um, you know, farm situations or, you know, normal exposure situations. Agricultural exposure anthrax. That makes, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So we had the, the Department of Defense had to get an EUA to be able to use that, that vaccine. But, you know, I want to say it it had been approved in advance of the EUA, just not. Emergency use authorization. Did I get that right? Yes, correct. Correct. So um, that began my, my interest in, biological attacks. And because I already had my master's uh, of science in public health uh, before I went on active duty, 
Despite the fact that I was a military intelligence officer, my battalion commander asked me to read the, you know, in-package insert for the anthrax vaccine and explain it to, to everybody because there was, as, as usual, there was all this confusion about what's the vaccine and is it really authorized and is it dangerous, is it safe, you know, all, all of that. So I, I did, but I also had that military intelligence side uh, as well, N understanding the threat and, and understanding that Iraq had weaponized uh, anthrax and some other agents and um, wondering, you know, what does it take to be prepared in that in that kind of environment? Um, one of the stories I tell about that time is that we used to get these scud alerts where we had uh, a little bit of notification that a scud was a scud missile was incoming and uh, we had to run around quite often wearing respirators and full uh, protective overgarments, uh, depending on what was going on. That mop, was that mop gear? Back in the, in the day, yes, it was called mop, mop gear or CPOGs, um, chemical protective overgarments. And uh, one night uh, we, we had a, an alert, uh, but it wasn't just an alert. There was an incoming SCUD missile. And I was running around outside as a platoon leader trying to get uh, my people and other folks, um, you know, alerted, ordering them to put on their oh, protective overgarments and take cover. Uh, so I happened to be outside when the a Scud and a Patriot collided. Now, it, it obviously didn't happen right over top of me because I would not be talking with you today, but it happened close enough that I could see it and that... Uh, my legs took the shock, you know, when they exploded and the pieces fell to the ground. But I'll tell you, Steve, during that time, as I was standing there, uh, in those few seconds that it took for those missiles to uh, collide and then pieces to fall to the ground, I stood there and I thought to myself, if there's a nuclear uh, piece to that warhead, um, then I'm toast. I'm standing around outside. But even if I wasn't standing around outside, I'm too close. I thought if there's a radiological weapon inside of that missile, then who knows? It kind of depends on how far away I am and, I, you know, still not great. Um, then I thought if there's a chemical inside that missile, I'm wearing chemical protective overgarments and assuming that I have put on my respirator correctly and everything is fine, then I, sh I should be okay. And then I thought if there's a biological in there, I'm not really sure that my chemical protective overgarments are going to help me with that. Kind of depends on the, the particle size, right? The organism size. And I also thought, well, I have the anthrax vaccine, but I had not yet gotten through the entire series. And what if it's not anthrax? I mean, it's not like anthrax is protective for other things. So uh, it was kind of an interesting situation, uh, to, to say the least. I wondered about it, and then the pieces fell to the ground, and then I ran off to do what a platoon leader does, go check on the troops, see where they are, whether they're okay. And then I wondered, uh, as a person with an MSPH, for the next, I don't know, three weeks, four weeks, is anything going to happen? Am I going to get sick? Am I going to get radiation illness? Am I going to get you know, poisoning? What's going to happen? Now, obviously, nothing happened. I did not contract anthrax or any other disease. But at that time, I remember thinking, what is it like for first responders? 
what would it be like in a domestic situation in any country, but in particular our country, uh, for them? And I thought I never want, I would never want a first responder to be asking themselves the same questions that I was asking and for them to not have the right protective equipment, to not have access to the vaccines that they might need, and most importantly, to not have access to the threat information that would let them know, hey, you know, this is what we need to be prepared for, um, especially considering first responders are going to get called for whatever might happen, and they're running into situations. Um, it's not, you know, I thought to myself then, and I still think it now, it's not it's not fair to accept, expect people to do that and not give them everything they need, including information to best protect themselves and be prepared. You know, I remember a time where there just was no preparedness for this. And then there was the learning and transferring that knowledge that bioterrorism and chemical or well, biological weapons and chemical weapons are not the same thing, right. whether they're militarized chemicals, uh, weaponized biological agents, that, 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 that they're not the same thing. So when you mentioned, you know, was the uh, mask you were wearing the filter appropriate for chemical weapons? Uh, you know, probably, probably, probably not. Probably not, yeah. Right? Probably not. And the yeah. radiation, well, that's a whole, that's a whole separate animal. Right. You know, people thought we were crazy in the 90s when we were building um, these anti-terrorism programs, but um couple things about new york city we worked for a mayor that was a, a u.s attorney and had exposure to no no pun intended who had exposure to bin laden who had exposure to stuff that was going on in the middle east and 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 jerry jerry Hauer, who um has come up in a number of podcasts he was the first director of oem and i was fortunate to be asked to join his team jerry passed away recently and uh, you know it's a big big loss to the community but jerry also had some some foresight that that bioterrorism was 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 a thing and he had he had some background in it from work in in, in previous jobs both in the military and in uh in the in the, in the private sector mm -hmm. uh you know then some people decided to throw airplanes at buildings uh in new york city and in uh in in well in north virginia technically and then you know, we always say dc but the pentagon is in is in north virginia and and then not too long after the 9-11 attacks were the anthrax attacks mm -hmm. in New York City and in Washington, D.C. Uh, so when you talk about the, the the domestic threat and how first responders have to, you know, respond and are exposed to these things, I, I know... Uh, uh, you know, a, a colleague I've worked with in my EMS days who was also in the NYPD, uh, an ESU cop that had contracted cutaneous anthrax from response to the uh, to the uh, the white powder events. And I, I probably Rock Center. I'm not sure exactly. I don't remember. It's 20 something years now. I don't remember the details, right. but even though he's fine, you know, cutaneous anthrax is treatable. But um, so you make a really valid point there. Yeah, I after I got out of the military, I was on active duty for four years. I went on to get my doctorate in public health and try to combine these two, you know, areas, public health and and military intelligence. And that brought me to bio. Uh, we were looking at the biological threat even before 2001, as, as I know you're you're aware. Yeah. It's not the first time that something's ever happened in human history. People using 
uh, biological uh, organisms to, you know, attack each other. Um, I would say, you know, during the late 80s, uh, early 90s, the presidents, President Clinton uh, and then President Bush, um, they were they were aware of the potential for biological attacks. And there were some preparedness activities going on, uh, especially, uh, or they began, I, as I recall, under under Clinton. But uh, I, I, you know, there were things going on. There were people like you and me and Jerry, uh, uh, Myra Soccer, and others who were who were in it. Uh, the Department of Defense was was really trying to be helpful at the time. And then something came out of left field. It wasn't a biological attack from a nation state, you know, in in uh, in in the manner we would have expected that to happen. Uh, instead, it was anthrax put into weaponized, powdered, put into letters, and then sent to very odd places. The media, uh, Capitol Hill, then we started getting the cross-contamination. Remember the woman who died in Connecticut? Um, just some little old lady, but it was cross-contaminated mail, and she had been ripping open her mail to throw it away, and that's how she got um, exposed. And yes, who did everybody call? They did not call the FBI. They did not call the Department of Defense. They called the first responders to come in because because that's what you do. The hazardous material, some perhaps some symptomology, perhaps not. Uh, that's what we're all trained to do, and uh, in in everybody started uh, coming. So I I remember those events, and and you know it's so. It's so interesting. I, I currently serve as the executive director for the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. It's co-chaired by former Senator Joe Lieberman and former governor of Pennsylvania and Secretary of Homeland Security, Security Tom Ridge. Uh, one of my commissioners, one of the other commissioners is Tom Daschle, former Senate Majority Leader. All right. And as you know, Senator Daschle was one of those people who was on the receiving end of one of those anthrax letters. Now, it's interesting to hear him talk about that experience and how he felt. Um, he he didn't open the, the letter himself. It was a staff person who who opened it. Right, I remember uh, all but that. But he yeah. was there, and he, he was exposed along with everybody else. Um, and just despite the preparedness activities that we had engaged in, uh, at least in the previous three to five years before 2001, um, still, it was just all over the place and people didn't know what they were doing and they weren't getting good guidance uh, from, uh, from, from the CDC, from HHS, from USDA, from the FDA, from nobody, including the Capitol physician. Because everybody was just kind of, we weren't sure what was going on and what was happening. Um, you know, and he still talks about those events. And he's not convinced that we're that much better prepared than we were back then. Uh, and now we have, you know, 22 years later, uh, as you and I have, have discussed before, people, there are a lot of people who are now alive and in positions and uh, working in the whole world as adults who were not even there on the planet uh, <laughs> when these events started to occur. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. I, I think we have a tendency to to respond to an event and then run around madly 
trying to put in preparedness measures and Congress spits out a bunch of money and uh, depending on where you are, you know, New York City was affected by this, you know, a few places in, in Florida, the you know, late, little old lady in Connecticut, uh, Capitol Hill, um, you know, and a few other places were affected. Those places really stood up and said, okay, we need to, we really need to be prepared. Um, and then here we are 22 years later and people don't necessarily feel like they have to be quite that prepared anymore. You know, near-term memory in the 90s, the near-term memory or awareness of bioterrorism incidents were kind of limited to the very popular story of the contaminated salad bar in, uh, was it Oregon? Oregon. And I suppose Salem, Oregon, I want to say. It was uh, uh, a cult, an extremist group called the Rajneesh, and oh. they had infected a salad bar. I want to say it was Salmonella. You might, right. you might be able to correct a record on that. In, and a, then, in a spray bottle. Right, right. Yeah, that that's a, a searchable on the internet. I would mm -hmm. encourage colleague emergency managers, especially those that are, are trying to understand some of our history and what the current threat might still be, uh, to, to check that one out, because that's the kind of thing that could happen in, in any anywhere, anytime. Right. That that was not like some really uh, you know sophisticated bioterrorism attack. Then there was the attempt by the um, so in 1995, uh, an extremist group did attack the Tokyo subway system with a chemical weapon called sarin. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a chemical nerve agent, and they did kill 12 people and injure about about 5,000. Uh, this same group, Om Shinrikyo, right. uh, had attempted to release uh aerosolized anthrax over the city of tokyo and they and they did mm -hmm. but it was ineffective uh, the wind as i understood it uh just carried you know the anthrax away they, they did successfully launch uh a, a an attack with uh, there was sarin before the subway as sort right. of a try a, a, a dry run in a in a small community they did did kill seven people i think they targeted some judges stuff like that so that was really the two big stories then that we had to go by. So I don't think that was enough uh, for people to really sink their teeth into to say, well, we really need to put effort on this. But somebody thought uh, that it was important because and you spoke about the Clinton and the Bush administrations, uh, Senators Nunn, Luger and Diminishy, right. you know where I'm going, right? The Nunn, Luger, uh, 120 cities preparedness program really opened up the, the uh, not just financial purse but also training planning and exercise opportunities for 120 of the largest cities in new york city and washington dc being the targets that they are with the first in fact new york city was so early in the program it was still being run by dod cbd chemical biological defense command right, right? i got my history down right and because uh, i was there and that that ultimately ended up be being called the spc com and in fact a number of us uh you probably are aware of this. We're part of a program at Aberdeen Proving Grounds that we tr we traveled monthly to a series of uh, DOD run meetings. Uh, uh, it was uh, at the time classified. See, we were all given secret level clearances, and it was the biological B warp biological weapons improved response program. I had to think about that, mm -hmm. and there was a mirror program on the chemical weapons side. And I think Myra may have been on the on the chemical one. And we had 
representation from the public health community, nationally, the public health community, fire police, EMS, uh, uh, New York, some of the big cities. Uh, I had on with me uh, the chief of the New York City Fire Department. We had a high-ranking NYPD chief, mm-hmm. uh, public health folks. I, I don't remember if it was uh, Marcy Layton or any fine. You probably know them. Uh, yeah, a smile. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't remember exactly who was there from health, but the, it, it was that kind of thing. So we did have the awareness. So for the, you said there was a generation of people now, and I'm, I'm glad you put it that way, because the podcast for me as, as a, as a non-monetized podcast, it's my, as a senior emergency manager, trying to give back and pay it forward to the younger emergency managers that are getting into the business. There was a threat. The threat bore fruit in the days post 9-11, where there were anthrax attacks with fatalities. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of our episodes, uh, earlier episodes on this podcast, I would encourage those interested to seek it out. Adam Montello was a deputy incident commander at the U.S. Capitol for the uh, for the deca- for the decontamination uh, and uh, mm-hmm. you know restoration and recovery that that went on down there. So the the threat the threat is real. Yeah, I would say before you move on from that, CEO, I'd like to make a point, and that is with the decontamination, um, when the Capitol said, hey, we need some decon, they went to the EPA and the EPA said, not our responsibility. And that was really interesting because everybody thought it was the EPA's responsibility. Now, of course, Congress being Congress told them they had to come and they had to help. But the point I'm trying to make is, it wasn't that the EPA was in charge of that effort. It was that Adam was in charge of the effort. It was the Capitol Police, not somebody from the EPA. Uh, and I and that is that continued thereafter. My understanding is that the EPA has never said we are going to be responsible for that. And somebody has to respond. Somebody has to take charge. So it's always a local person. It may not be a, a uh, an EMS person, it might be a, a fire chief, it might be a police, you know, person, it might be uh, a laboratory person, a scientist, it might be somebody from the agricultural community, but it's never, it's never a fed from the EPA. Right. And, and I, I'm thinking that through, uh, what would the EPA be in charge of? Because under ESF 10, the EPA has responsibility for hazardous materials, environmental emergencies and disasters, unless it's uh, in, a, in, a maritime, in a navigable waterway mm-hmm. and up to, I think, one mile off the coast, which would make it the responsibility of the Coast Guard. I'm getting really wonky here, but I believe that's how it works. And you're right. It would not be the EPA. I mean, could they be part of a unified command? Maybe they'd probably be more in an advisory capacity. I don't want to get right. political but I'll mention just briefly in passing that the EPA did clear ground zero for contaminants and did say that there was not going to be um, any any follow on illness. And we tragically have exceeded the amount of people killed by 9-11 illness most recently in the past month or so, mm-hmm. uh, for, and at least on the in the fire side, uh, fire 343 FDNY personnel, meaning 
uh, firefighters, uh -huh. uh, fire inspectors, and EMS personnel were killed on 9-11. We have exceeded the amount of FDNY personnel that have passed from 9-11 illness since right. then. So the EPA has, I don't think has ever been seen as having that kind of an emergency response role. Probably more like a train wreck with hazardous materials, like a Palestine, Ohio thing where they have more of a, uh, you know, I think that's their ballgame. Bioterrorism, not so much. Yeah, and I, I, I think the point I'm trying to make is at the time, there was this assumption that it was going to be the EPA. I get and, it. Yeah. And that assumption was just not true. Now, nobody right. called you and nobody called me, but but it wasn't true. And then so in the midst of a, an emergency, people are scrambling around trying to figure out, well, who is in charge? And somebody from the Capitol Police stood up and said, well, I'm taking charge. And this no. is what's going no. to happen. Um I think I think we're in the same, you know, oftentimes still in the same position. But it is my, it's been my experience and my my um, from what I've heard, it's now it's almost always somebody from the first re responder community. Um, and I will tell you, uh, the fire chiefs are amongst the most experienced, at, well, most knowledgeable, I should say, about biological agents. I I went went to a NASCAR uh, stadium um, for, as part of something I was doing for Congress when I was a congressional staffer, and you know talk to this person and talk to that person, and it's not like the first responder community you know as a whole was uh, un um, unknowledgeable uh, or ignorant to the possibility that somebody might use a biological, but they didn't really have a lot whole lot to say about it. But then I talked to the fire chief or the fire chief was standing there talking about weather inversions. And if it, if this happened and that happened, this other thing would happen. Um, you know, he might as well have had a Ph.D. Uh, and, and, and didn't. It's just that he that was his job. And he considered it part of his job to to know about all of that with regards to uh, that particular, you know, venue uh, and uh, probably probably others as well. Um, but. We don't have it set as a, this is what's going to happen. It will always be the fire chief. It'll always be the police chief. We don't, we haven't set it that way. And I'm, I'm not even saying it should be set that way. You, you know, maybe COVID is a bad corollary to that or not a great analog, but I think there was, and there still remains conflict, tension existed between public health and emergency management, I think, because it was unclear who was going to be in charge. Mm -hmm. uh, and the political dysfunction at at all levels, at all three, well, four levels, if you, you know, federal, you know, state, local, tribal, if you consider that, the, the, the complete dysfunction didn't help. Mm -hmm. um, where it, in, in a typical emergency, so carrying your scenario forward local emergency an event like that fire department might be the incident commander and then there might be an emergency operations center the local emergency manager is stood up and they've done planning together and while the fire hazmat crews are doing their tactical stuff on the ground the eoc is starting to work with public health cdc i'm playing out scenarios i've been involved in west nile fever uh -huh. i was part of the west nile fever we didn't know that wasn't bioterrorism in fact in the early days 
and the symptoms were uh, analogous to uh, equine encephalitis because it was it was in the marshes along New York City, and people were getting sick and had fevers, uh, myself included, and we didn't really know what it was. I don't not sure I had West Nile, but people people were sick. So so, but we played it up like bioterrorism, and instead of distributing. This is funny, you know, not so funny. When instead of distributing uh, prophylactic antibiotics from our points of distribution, we were distributing uh, insecticide. We oh. had, uh, you know, we were giving out malathion and 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 that kind of stuff, and that that was a whole separate environmental thing. But that, that that's the guidance that's the guidance we had at the time. Yeah. I agree, local fire would be typically, but but then you got places like New York City. Um, where you know the New York City Health and uh, Mental Hygiene Department has that has you know strong strong capability. I'd like to think the public health folks would at very least give good guidance to the to the locals. Right, and New York, of course, you know, is in a category on its uh, in its uh, of its own Always. and has done a lot. And you know, it recognizes that uh, it is at the highest risk of any city in in the country for anything to include bioterrorism. Um, so they've done a lot of work that uh, I certainly hope other localities, uh, you know, copy and take advantage of uh, because because New York City is not shy about uh, t- telling people what they're doing and they, 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 they're, they're good about sharing. Um, but I think that, you know, other places in the, in the country right now, they're not, they don't have that same pressure, you know, feeling that they're under the same sort of risk that, that a major city, the major city in our country uh, is. I think that's unfortunate because we always think of the big cities uh, as the targets, uh, New York, LA, DC, certainly. uh, But then uh, a mid-sized city comes along like Oklahoma City, you know, right? Uh, Out of left field. Uh, That was domestic terrorism, of course, as we all know, uh, you know, truck bomb, the Murrah Federal Building, 160 some odd dead. That's just um, emblematic of the threat that exists from domestic and, and global terrorism, uh, whether it's uh, conventional weapons or weapons of mass destruction, like biological or chemical weapons. And I think that's a segue into a discussion I'd like to have about, to the extent you can discuss it, what is the threat today? that emergency managers, especially young emergency managers coming into the field, what is the threat that they need to, to understand and what what can they be doing in their home agencies? What should they be doing in their, in their home agencies? And when I say emergency management, I'm also talking about in the private sector because um, since 9-11, most uh, infrastructure agencies and even in the manufacturing or service sector have some form of emergency management, uh-huh. whether it's called crisis management, uh, whether it's called incident commanders uh, like they have on the cyber side or a resilience. Uh, there's a lot of that going on. What can these folks that are focusing very aggressively on the threat du jour, which in my mind is climate uh, and, and uh, climate risk, uh, and prevention and response to climate emergencies. And boy, I've responded to some pretty interesting climate events, especially in my time in New York and, and Colorado. But focusing on this on this bioterrorism threat, is there still a threat? What should they be doing? 
I think, yes, there, there definitely is still a threat. And I actually, let me start, let me, let's go up a level um, in terms of nation states. Uh, the State Department, our U.S. State Department, put out uh, a report, puts out a report uh, in which they're looking at compliance and verification of various conventions that we have, the Chemical Weapons Convention, the Biological Weapons Convention. Right. And in that report, the last, uh, I don't know, three years, I believe, or so, uh, they have been quite clear in this unclassified document that Russia still has an active offensive biological weapons program. In the last two years, they added North Korea to that list um, where they're just saying right straight out, Russia and North Korea have active offensive biological weapons programs. Now they're also talking about China and Iran. Last year, they said a bunch of stuff about dual use and there's a lot of questionable activity, but you know they didn't wanna come right out and say they have those offensive biological weapons programs, but they had that capacity at the very least and capability. This year, they said, we have no proof that the old offensive biological weapons programs that those two countries, China and Iran had previously ever went away. So they're still not coming right out and saying, hey, you know, China and Iran have active programs, but you can see they're getting closer and closer to, to something. And, and granted, this is in the unclassified arena anyway. So there might be other stuff out there that they, they can say if, if it was classified. But so we have at least four countries that we're, we're uh, either sure or pretty sure have uh, offensive biological weapons programs or the capacity to to create something very quickly. So why am I bringing that up? I, I bring it up because when, especially when you look at Russia, we know from defectors and others, and including people inside Russia, uh, back when they were being a bit more open about things, that they weaponized tons, not pounds, tons of biological agents. Uh, they weaponized smallpox, they weaponized anthrax, they weaponized plague, uh, they weaponized a bunch of other things too. Uh, and they had high level biological weapons laboratories uh, in a number of uh, locations within Russia. Now, at some point, we know that they uh, buried a whole bunch of biological, weaponized biological agents uh, on an island near near uh, the country of Russia. Um, and, I, you know, to this day, you might know better, Steve. I don't know why they buried it. Why didn't they just burn it uh, or put some chemicals on it and destroy it? But they buried it. Um, some people say that uh, eventually that that island was remediated and they they uh, destroyed those tons of biological agents. Other people say, we don't have any proof of that. I fall in the latter category, to be honest with you. We don't have proof of that. We don't have proof that they, uh, that they shut down their programs. Um, and when we have let, uh, when they have let, Russia has let Americans and others in to, to look at laboratories and look at different places, they've not let them uh, into everywhere. So frankly, nothing prevents them from putting a whole bunch of weaponized smallpox on a truck and driving it somewhere else and then showing somebody like, see, we don't have anything over here. So we just don't know uh, what, what happened to all of that. And 
And, and that's important when you look at where we are with the world right now, um, not just in terms of the potential for Russia to uh, conduct a biological attack on another country, but also in terms of countries that have already weaponized stuff, handing that stuff off to uh, to to terrorists who then go off and do something else with it, or losing track, uh, not adequately protecting what's already been weaponized, and somebody going in there and stealing it uh, and uh, going off. Uh, or the third option, you know, the black market still exists, as you, as you know. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff available on the on the dark web. And uh, we absolutely know that terrorists are on the dark web looking for biological agents. So um, we have that nation state program. So now we talk about, you know, coming down to the level of the, the bioterrorists, the terrorism uh, situation. There is a possibility of nation state sponsorship of terrorists. Uh, so the nation states trying to stay kind of hidden in the background, uh, but they're enabling terrorists to do things uh, as their proxies. And so it's possible we have to consider the possibility that um, a nation state could provide a terrorist group with biological weapons and biological agents that, that could be weaponized. Um, as as a proxy, that is a that is a possibility. Uh, but what do we know? Let's talk about what we know for sure. What we know for sure is that Al Qaeda and ISIS slash ISIL um, were in active pursuit of biological agents and weapons. Uh, Al Qaeda actually hired uh, some folks, some scientists to to work on this. Uh, we know that special U.S. special forces, uh, when they have been in various locations, have have found laptops and other things to to indicate that there's um, not just interest, but planning and and um, discussion about what to do if you could get a hold of a biological agent. Um, Al Qaeda's magazine, uh, Inspire, Inspire. Yeah. yes, Inspire had a had a a story. I mean, this was maybe a decade or, or so ago uh, about biological weapons and uh, in in treating uh, those that follow Al-Qaeda and are part of Al-Qaeda to uh, engage in biological uh, acts of biological terrorism, they could get their hands on, uh, on biological agents. So there was pursuit back then. Um, now we have the rise of domestic violent extremists here in the United States and elsewhere in the world. And we still see interest um, on, on the internet, uh, mostly on the dark web, from what I understand. I haven't seen it, but I, I understand that from other folks, uh, interest in biological attacks. And I, I would add for that piece, it's not just biological attacks on human beings, Steve. There's also the potential for biological attacks on agriculture, uh, on animals and on plants. And I, I don't wanna, I don't wanna belittle that threat if we had something like wheat blast, which is a disease that obviously affects uh, wheat, um, that was somehow genetically modified, or even if it wasn't genetically modified, to be honest, it's a pretty dangerous disease. But imagine if it came to the United States, if a terrorist tried to utilize that, and it just flew through the nation's wheat crops, 
we would have a situation where we don't have anything made with wheat sitting on on uh, uh, store shelves. We would lose bread. We would lose anything that's made with wheat. Um, I think our American populace would freak out to walk into a store and not see bread, not see cereal, not see all this stuff that that we we incorporate wheat into and use wheat for. Um, it would be a huge issue. I don't even know what would I, I, I we we should really think about it, Steve. What would happen in terms of nutritional status if we lost that whole part of of what we eat from the food supply for some unknown period of time? Again, and, and what's the recovery? How long would it take to recover? I don't know. How long would it take, and what would you have to do to remediate like land? Uh, and you'd have to look. You'd have all those plants would be dead. So first we have to get rid of all the dead plants. Then we have to make sure that the organism isn't still hanging around in the environment somehow and isn't still or couldn't still be spreading. Then you'd have to get a whole bunch of new seeds and go plant all over the place. Then you'd have to wait for it to grow. Then you'd have to, while it's growing, you'd have to put in some some kind of protective mechanism to make sure that it doesn't happen again. And all of those crops throughout the nation are, are protected. Um, it would have to be this huge, humongous program. Now I'll tell you, USDA has, uh, has funding to deal with outbreaks and prevent these huge um, events from, um, from occurring uh, at all. Uh, but it would take, um, you know, some pretty, pretty observant uh, farmers and first responders to understand what was going on. And then you have also, I'll just add one other scenario, and that is the potential for multiple things happening at once. Um, you know, a, a plague events that affects human beings and animals at the same time would just complicate everything that's going on. Uh, an agricultural event occurring at the same time as a human event uh, is occurring. Now we're talking about splitting resources, not sure what's going on where. So I absolutely believe that the terrorist threat is still uh, something that's a huge problem. And look, you mentioned COVID before. One of the things that COVID did was reveal our national and global vulnerabilities to disease. And you know as well as I do, we have not yet built back up in terms of uh, uh, stores of, of, of those critical supplies that we need to even deal with COVID now. We don't have enough respirators still in the nation. What happens if we have a botulism attack? We still don't have enough uh, respirators, just period. Um, and uh, our supply chains are still not squared away. Uh, we're not where we need to be. And generally, in terms of warfare and in terms of terrorism, the enemy looks for vulnerabilities and looks to exploit them. So, uh, and here's one that, um, I, 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 if I recall, the Ukraine is the world's second largest producer of wheat. So if we have uh, our own shortage and they are still at war with Russia, there's no guarantee that there's going to be uh, their ability to export, even if their stuff is not even infected as well, right. uh, to get the, their wheat in, in uh, um, you know, transported into the right. U.S. Yeah, right. that's, 
So, so why have we stopped talking about bioterrorism? I, I get it. Some of it is funding. Some of it is awareness. But I, I am, you know, still very heavily ingrained with the emergency management community and and in touch with uh, emergency managers. This stuff does not come up. We talk about contemporary threats like cyber, big okay. threat. We talk about um, political violence these days, January 6th, and another presidential election coming. Uh, climate, certainly, no question. No question climate is is, is an issue. Extremes of, and I've experienced this, especially in Colorado, expre- extremes of uh, of winter. Okay. I, I worked a bomb cyclone event in 2019. That was something extraordinary that I, I never thought I'd, ex- I'd experience. And uh, uh, wildfires, extreme extreme wildfires we had uh, uh chris malliard on he was a he's an emergency manager healthcare sector in uh boulder he he was on this, the show and he spoke about the mission fire largest most destructive fire in colorado which was uh-huh. which was last year so so that stuff is out there but we're not talking about chemical and biological weapons when i got to colorado i asked uh you know what 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 are the plans for chemical weapons well why do we need that well i don't know something about you know this city being a, na- a center for national security being that there's five military bases here and and uh well we have chem packs and stuff like that as you would expect you know the fire department had their stuff but yeah. people aren't thinking about it they're thinking about the risks that are right in front of them this might right. this might not be such an obscure risk Right. Yeah, I think, look, we've become very good at responding to things. Uh, We've optimized here in this country for response. Uh, We're not so good about preparedness because preparedness preparedness really should be about forecasting, right? Looking into the future and talking about possibilities, Uh, not necessarily probabilities, but possibilities. Uh, But getting enough funding for all of that, look at what happens in terms of funding, right? You could get a ton of funding post-events for response. You can't get that same ton of money pre-event for preparedness. Uh, So that the entire system is kind of optimized in in not the right direction. Um, I, you know, we, we used to say, Steve, what it takes is an event. And once you have that event, well, then everybody will be prepared. Well, but also people... You know, time goes by and other things creep in and there are other issues to deal with and limited resources. Uh, And I mean, look, we have places in this country where you're you're forbidden from even mentioning the word COVID, uh, despite the fact that people are still, you know, dying from it. And but it's become endemic. And so and we all kind of want to move on. Um, But the one community that can't really afford to move on entirely from everything is. The emergency management community that cannot they have to they have to continue to focus on preparedness so you asked me what do what can the emergency management community do what actions can they take so i will i'll, I'll tell you our our commission does have uh, we put out an, a, a number of reports some of which might be of interest some of which might not but we did write about um, state, local, tribal, and territorial emergency response capabilities and what they needed to do to prepare uh, and to be able to respond, obviously, to biological events. So I would, I would, I would point there. Um, if you could send me a link, I'll put it in the show notes so everybody sure. has access to that. Sure. Um, there's that. I also think that, you know, I talked about the threat before. Um, depending on your city, of course. Uh, you may or may not have access to to threat information. Um, 
And it doesn't all have to be classified. The FBI has their their field offices and they're supposed to share <laughs> some information. Uh, the the FBI hasn't backed down from the uh, from the biological threat. So there's some information there. We have fusion centers throughout the country. I would I would recommend that uh, the emergency management community you know make sure they're they're part of those fusion centers and get some information out. Um, I get it that uh, look there. I, I I'll say it again. There we all have limited resources, including limited time, uh, but. When it comes to the biological threat, unlike all the many of the rest of them, we're in a situation where you expect that you're going to get, if you're going to get hit with a biological agent, you're going to get sick. And now you have, you have a tail. Um, well, maybe not a tail, but you're going forward in time. And it's possible that things are going to be communicable, infectious, and other people might get sick too. And the situation is just going to expand and expand and expand unless it gets, you know, unless we get it under control. That's not what happens with a chemical attack. Weeks and weeks and months and months and years and years later, we're not saying, gee, we haven't been able to to, to draw a circle around this chemical event and and encapsulate it and clean it up. We don't say that about radiological and we don't even say it about nuclear, to be honest. It's not to say that there aren't after effects, obviously, but but biological is different. Um, and I think that, I think, look, emergency managers throughout the nation, they need to go back and dust off some of those old plans um, and not just the pandemic influenza plan, because obviously those didn't, to help quite a lot during COVID. But um, we have bioterrorism plans all throughout this country. They might be decades old. Uh, they might be what you and I wrote uh, and helped to write, but they're yeah. there. Nobody threw them away. Um, I, I think they got to dust those things off. And I think that they need to think, you know, when they're making investments, when they get their FEMA grant money and stuff, I think they need to think about, okay, Yes, we're looking at some climate change issues, and yes, we're looking at cyber and things that are right smack in our face, but are there some investments we can make, things that we can buy, training that we can obtain that could help us not just with those other things, but also with the biological threat? Did the uh, the programs, uh, there were sniffers around some cities and they would collect samples. Has that bore any fruit? Did that prove it's worth I if forget the name of those that program. It's called BioWatch. BioWatch, right? Yeah, and uh, you know, I give you two answers that I usually hear. One is no, it's a big, freaking, huge, humongous waste of money and time, and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars that the detectors don't work. They're twenty-year-old technology, uh, etc. So that's on the one side, super negative, totally irritating everybody state, local, uh, well, state and local, I would say, uh, on the one side. The other side of it is the BioWatch program, and I think a couple of the other programs over there at the Department of Homeland Security uh, are part of securing the cities. Uh, and there's money that comes out, and that money goes to the state and local folks. Uh, and that money has been helpful. It's been helpful to them. So, it, but it's tied to BioWatch and, and some of these other okay. not so great programs. So, so the unfortunately, the state and local folks are put in this weird position. They don't want to stand up and say, 
these detectors don't work, you're you're taking up valuable space in subways. You're forcing us to respond to things that aren't even actual events. Oh, um, false hits. False hits, false positives, false whatever. On the one side, you're forcing. You want us to say that, but at the same time, we're we're deriving benefit from the funds that are coming in. So we can't say that those programs are terrible because if we said that, then of course we'd lose our funding. So, um, I mean, that's just the reality of it, Steve. That is the reality of it. But those detectors don't work. And I think that's part of the issue. Um, if you're a first responder and you keep responding to false positives from, from this technology that you know is 20 years old and you know doesn't work particularly well, if at all, why would you take that threat seriously? I remember them not working 20 years ago, 20 some odd years ago when they were putting them up in Times Square. I don't, you know, and other places I'm using just Times Square right. as a, as, as an icon. You know, I want to make one more point that, that, that you made because it shouldn't be lost on the emergency managers, a bioterrorism event, especially one involving um, uh, a contagious disease. So, Correct me if I'm wrong. Anthrax is not a transmissible person to person. It's contracted, uh, and, and that person is sick, but it's it's not it's not yeah. transferable or communicable. Uh, yeah, unless I mean it depends on the kind you get, but it's not communicable like smallpox. Okay, and and the smallpox was going to be my. By the way, I'm shocked to hear you say that smallpox has been weaponized because you know I remember the days where uh, it was our understanding that there were smallpox samples. Only that existed at um, CDC in the U.S. and was it Biopreparat in in in, uh, in the Soviet Union or Russia? Russia? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ken Olabek, that that whole story. Yeah, and and that there was smallpox uh, that had well smallpox had been eradicated as a as a disease uh, globally. But uh, so I was really surprised and really uh, uncomfortable to hear you say that because of the threat there. It is extremely communicable as opposed to anthrax anyway on a communicable uh it doesn't matter communicable or not in 1966 there was a study in the new york city subway system where uh, a, an anthrax simulant uh a pathogen was released in the new york city subway system mm -hmm. uh somewhere in midtown to uh evaluate how infected they can uh the population would become and they had uh, sniffers throughout the subway system in manhattan mm -hmm. and they were able to determine that through the piston effect the push and pull of the train the airflow of the subways of the subway trains that the the pathogen traveled very quickly and that the disease not only traveled throughout the subway system once people contracted it it dispersed throughout the tri-state area so it went from just like a localized incident. Your point about a chemical weapons attack, chemical occurs, it's like a big hazmat incident and you deal with it. And then, well, there will be health sequelae, but right. nothing like a bioterrorism event. Now you have, um, let's say, a, a typical subway car at rush hour can hold 1,500, which is the number I recall. Those 1,500 people become infected. They don't know they're sick for three days, right? The right. incubation period for anthrax, I think, is 24 hours to 72. They don't know they're sick for some days. Now they've traveled throughout the whole wherever. Some of them could be, uh, have gotten on planes and traveled across the globe. Right. If it was a contagious event like smallpox, we have a, a, an even an even bigger situation. So I just want folks that have not been exposed to, again, no pun intended, to emer to bioterrorism, to understand that 
that it's it's not a threat to be taken lightly. It's something that we really have to maybe yeah. start thinking about again. And it's not just about response. I, I, I want to be clear. We're depending on our first responders. We're depending on our emergency managers. We're depending on critical infrastructure owners and operators um, to do, to continue in the midst of a biological event. Um, I don't care what people think about vaccines. Pro or con, vaccines exist. And if you want one, you should be able to get one uh, in in advance. But, you know, that has to do with the, with the threat and, you know, m money. Certainly, I'd like to see uh, things that are expiring in the strategic national stockpile be given for free to our first responder community uh, instead of just letting it expire and throw it away. Um, if the first responders want to take it based on the threat, they should be able to do that. Uh, instead of letting, we're just wasting money and letting. You know, I wonder fire. how many folks listening to this even know what the SNS is. The Strategic National Stockpile is is a it was a major accomplishment back in the late '90s, and I remember when the um, the I think it was called the it had a special name like the not push package like a small box a mm -hmm. push package showed up in new york city yeah uh, which was a few tractor trailers load on 9-11 of course mm -hmm. a few tractor trailers load of uh, medical equipment showed up in new york city uh and that's um the these the sns stockpiles are in classified locations throughout the united states we don't know where it came from on 9-11. I still don't know where it came from mm -hmm. on 9-11, but I was, I was glad to see it. But you have to, it can't just show up. A local jurisdiction has to have a reception plan. It has to have a distribution plan. It has to management because the CDC, right. actually, it's not CDC anymore. I think it's DHS. Right. They're going to HHS. roll in. Is it HHS now? See, it's it's traveled around. Yeah. So <laughs> H, H, uh, HHS will, will show up and there's going to be an expectation that there's a place to bring it where it could be broken down, repackaged, uh, redistributed and where's it going to get redistributed to if we're talking about antibiotics and, and antiviral medications uh it, it's not the kind of thing that you want to do on the fly I, i'll credit jerry with giving me the knowledge uh, uh because i he i had the responsibility to to learn not only that this was needed but to help lead along with many other notable yeah. uh uh you know popular emergency management folks from that time and 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 uh that's it's, it's scary to think about it. I agree with you entirely. Uh, that's absolutely the expectation. The feds are not going to come in with the stuff and then also break it down, distribute it, send it around, do the plan and all of that. They've been very clear about that. Uh, there is a training gap there, though. Uh, the feds are also not doing a great job of training uh, the, the state and local folks that would be that would be receiving this. Yeah. Um, but regardless, it needs to happen. And what usually does happen is if part of the strategic national stockpile, these big giant pallets show up in a, in a jurisdiction, suddenly it's on the jurisdiction to hurry up and figure it out, which they can. Uh, but time, you know, the clock is ticking on this stuff. You want to get those antibiotics out. You want to get those vaccines out, not be standing around trying to figure out how to get the plastic off and distribute something and be trying to generate a plan. Um, I, I'll say too, you in terms of actions that can be uh, taken, um, the commission, the commission I had released a blueprint for biodefense back in 2015, and in it we did talk about 
some emergency response actions and some uh, activities, action items specific to first responders. We do talk about this uh, use of expiring vaccine and you know allowing it to uh, to go to first responders for free. Um, we're going to be we are refreshing that blueprint uh, in light of the the more recent threat and. Uh, the need for more departments and agencies and state and local and tribal and territorial and private sector folks to be uh, involved in biodefense. So that's going to come out uh, in the spring of next year. Um, and uh, when that comes out, I'll let you know, Steve. And if you give send me the link to the current one, if, sure. I'll, I'll also put that in the show notes, at least uh, the folks that are interested. Uh, um, I'd like to think that you and I, uh, with our decades in doing this, will uh, you know have some influence on some some of the emergency managers out there, and they'll start thinking about this as well. You know, we're in an, entering a new. We have entered a new area era of global instability. Uh, the the ten seven attacks in Israel and you know the follow on conflict is um, is not localized. Uh, we see that there are uh, dramatic social implications globally in the United States and, and Western European countries as well. And uh, what's what's not happening is what we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. So it, it, this is yet another threat that we need to plan for in the emergency management community. You know, I, I think about the threat timeline, if you will, and I, I probably need to do a paper or a podcast on this how the threats have changed over my 30, 40 years in emergency management from, right. From, you know, when I went into emergency management, it was, uh, we had hurricanes in New York. Guess what? They have hurricanes in New York. Yeah. People didn't really believe it. And then you had big hurricanes like Sandy in New York. And, and then you had uh, 9-11 and now the, you know, the international terrorist threat and then the domestic terrorist threat in uh, Oklahoma city and how that has manifested itself more recently in threats, um, uh, yeah, I certainly had opportunity to work with the FBI on some threats when I was a critical infrastructure emergency manager out in Colorado, domestic wow. right wing stuff. And, and you just think about all the threats. And now, uh, and I've always thought about what happened to all those bioterrorism plans? Because when C we exported our plans in New York City to CDC, they in turn exported them to, to the cities in some form. And I was you know, privileged to be part of that and take them to the cities. You know, I had, I traveled to some cities to, to brief them and do exercises and stuff like that. So, yeah. Uh, and there was people, like you said, you mentioned Myra soccer, you know, big, she had a, you know, she had a huge role in this stuff back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, somebody else has to start picking up these, um, these torches, right. And uh, keep moving. I, you know, my, my sincere wish is that it doesn't take another, a biological event, a biological attack for for the nation to to jumpstart itself in terms of preparedness. We have Do the we opportunity now. We seem to be in a state of perma crisis. That's a term you may have heard. That's kind of like huh. been bantered about, and it's just crisis after crisis after crisis. If 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 we're going crisis after crisis, and we just do sort of we look back along the chain of crises, we need to go back to two thousand one, two thousand two, and remember that there were a series of anthrax attacks in this country, and that it can happen again. And right. it doesn't have to be anthrax. Uh, there are other diseases out there. I, if I recall correctly, there were. CDC had a list of hot eight pathogens 
and toxins that could have been uh, weaponized and used uh, as as bioterrorism agents. Um, I'm thinking tularemia, brucella, and and diseases like that, uh, and uh, ricin, you know, toxins and stuff like that. It doesn't have to be anthrax, which is not communicable. Generally speaking, it could be something much more insidious. Right. right. Wow. So I'm I'm looking at my notes. I made a note here. Um, Halapsha. You know, when I think about Iran, Iran, I, I think about the chemical weapons attack in Halapsha, where they dropped sarin and uh, uh, other chemical weapons on their own population. I didn't. I'm not quite sure. I knew that Iran had such a robust biological weapons program. Uh, to, to the extent uh, that you spoke about. We spoke about the Nunluga program. I think it's important for emergency managers to know the history. So in the 1990s, yeah. I was learning about Fiorella LaGuardia being the first New York City emergency manager, a civil defense director, uh -huh. and learning about uh, uh, Jimmy Carter uh, creating FEMA in 1979. Today, emergency managers look back on the Nunluga program because, and I've spoken about this on this show, the Nunluger Dominici 120 Cities program was a federal program, I believe, that actually helped, that actually bore fruit. It funded programs with provided equipment, training, and exercises for chemical and biological weapons. And good, bad, or indifferent, a lot of that stuff has been used over the years in response to natural disasters and the COVID pandemic. Uh -huh. And I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. Those plans you talk about that are sitting on the shelves that were written 25 years ago, you're right. You and I and people like us wrote some of those, uh, and uh, they're, they're still out there. At least I hope they are, and there's definitely lessons to be learned. Um, you have a couple reports, some links you'll send me. I'll put in the show notes. Uh, sure, that would be that would be that would actually, be very Steve, helpful. I'll send you a link to uh, – we, we did a graphic novel, too on the history of germ warfare. So for people who want to just flip through a, uh, a comic book, they can, they can do that too. Uh, it was written by Max Brooks, who is the guy who wrote World War Z. I love it. Ab absolutely. Because the novels I read on bioterrorism, uh, you know, go back to uh, the monkeys, the rest in monkeys yes. <laughs> you know uh you know that that whole that whole thing but i know that was a real incident but there were novels written along 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 those lines right. uh the rhesus monkeys yeah right wow i'm 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 actually scaring myself on how much, I, <laughs> how much I you're remember. gonna scare your gray hair black again uh, well that's okay that's okay uh you know, uh, you make a point about fusion centers. I'm not quite sure your general emergency manager knows that there's an intel available to them. And I believe intelligence is part of that monitoring. We, we recorded an episode this morning with Kelly McKinney, who is uh, who succeeded me in New York City emergency management by a few years. We had He had the same job I did. And now he's head of emergency management for the NYU Health System, you know, six acute care hospitals and many other uh, 400 clinics and stuff like that. And you know, he talks about situational awareness and intelligence, keeping a finger on the pulse. Fusion centers are, are an opportunity. I attended fusion center briefings in Colorado uh, when I was uh, an emergency manager in Colorado. Now, I could tell you, I mean, I can't tell you what did what were discussed in those because there was a classified meetings, but I could say that VT never came up. And oh. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, that didn't. But uh yeah. Uh, wow. What a what a great hour. What a, I mean, it's a little bit of a trip down memory lane, but also a little bit of uh, 
uh, a threat, a little bit of a, a scary warning for for emergency manager, managers out there. It's really great to see you. I am so grateful for you coming on the show. Sure. And uh, I'm glad that uh, that you and I are still in touch after all these years and still sure. still feeling it and still caring about the game. And I love your um, vision and your passion for making sure that first responders, of course, you know, I'm close to the fire rescue law enforcement community, uh, that the first responders have the equipment that they need to do. And also thank you for recognizing that it is your first responders that are going to be the most knowledgeable in this stuff. Good, better, and different. That's how it's evolved over the years. Absolutely. It is the fire chief and their hazmat team that's going to have it, that's going to get it going. Or or depending on the area, it might be the police. It might be yeah, yeah. might be whom whomever. But that that's the way I see it, Steve. It, this responsibility is firmly on their shoulders. And yeah, you have a you have a bunch of feds kind of squawking up in the in the stratosphere and and handing out some money but when it comes to the actual event who who's there right you know unless unless this event is happening on top of hhs headquarters it's not going to be the feds it's going to be the first responders it is right and and you take cities like new york where they have uh esu and the nypd you know they have a hazmat team for uh, a criminally based uh, uh, sort of uh, hazmat, and they and they could back up the fire department. So you're absolutely right about law enforcement, EMS being part of that. Right. But seek out your public health providers. Get them. Get a conversation going. Uh, I would venture a guess that Mister and Miss Emergency Manager, if you invite your public health director in for a conversation, say, "I'd really like to talk about bioterrorism." You're going to see a smile on their face because somebody. These are somebody. These are people that think about this stuff all the time and yeah. i and i think it i think it would uh, open up a good dialogue at the very least you get you get a dialogue going thanks thank again you. i want to thank, thank usher you. i want to thank usher for joining five minutes to chaos and for sharing her career experience and uh uh her insights and guidance on biological terrorism five minutes to chaos drops weekly on thursdays please follow us or like us on your favorite platform and set it to alert for when an episode drops, I welcome your comments or questions, which can be submitted in the comments area of the show or directed to me on LinkedIn. And until next time, embrace the chaos. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Five Minutes to Chaos. We hope you enjoyed exploring the many facets of the incident we discussed today and gained some new insights and perspectives along the way. Remember, confronting chaos is not something to be feared or avoided. It is a central crisis management role that we can learn to embrace and navigate with robust leadership and personal resilience. By embracing chaos, we can tap into our creative potential, adapt to situations more easily, and find a way to overcome the challenges of complex emergencies. I'd like to thank our guests and experts who shared their insights with us today. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you found value in today's episode and invite you to continue exploring the many aspects of complex crisis management. Don't forget to subscribe to 5 Minutes to Chaos for more thought-provoking conversations and insights. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review or sharing it with a friend and colleague. Until next time, embrace the chaos. Thank you.